The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Announcements. Everybody in the room is going, oh no, she's talking again. Um, For those of you who don't know, my name is Janet Dickelman and I'm the convention, uh, I'm the president of ACB of Minnesota. I just want to thank our sponsors. We have our, at the 500 level, we have Democracy Live. They sponsored our dinner last evening and we had a great conversation from uh, Charlie and uh, Brian and thank them very much. Later on after lunch today, we will hear from our other sponsor, Vanda Non24. And uh, Jennifer Lyman will be addressing our group, and she'll be here in person. I also want to thank the family of Jason Santana White, his mother, Anne. Jason passed away in November. He was a member of ACB Minnesota, and his mother asked for donations to ACBM, and that the banquet is in honor this evening of Jason. So thanks so much to our sponsors. I want to thank Bryn who is our on-site AV person. She is doing a wonderful job. Even though she stepped out of the room to get a bite of breakfast. I'm back. Are you back? All right, good. Um, And our streamer today is Tyson Ernst. And our Zoom hostess is Lucy Edmonds. And Cecily Nipper is in the wings handling everything for us. So thanks to everyone. I appreciate everyone being here. I'm going to turn the microphone over now to ACBM Treasurer Patty Slabby, who is going to introduce our morning programming, and we're going to kind of go back and forth. So uh, here's Patty. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to everybody on Zoom and in our person. And this morning we're going to begin with a very enthusiastic individual who I have been working with as a member of the Board of Directors for the Wisconsin Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired. Um, She's going to be talking about advocacy for everyone, enhancing your skills and effectiveness. And she is the CEO of, of the council, does a lot of advocacy work. I thought I knew how to advocate until I met Denise. So I'm going to turn the Microphone over to Denise Just from Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I am so delighted to be with you this morning, and thank you so much for the virtual option. It is snowing um, like the Dickens here in southern Wisconsin, and yesterday we had a 80-some car pile up on the interstate um, during another snow squall. So I am very grateful to join you this way um, and to be safe at home. So um, I want to begin with a big shout out to Patty and I'm delighted that you were the one to introduce me. Um, Patty, I know, is a great asset to um, ACB Minnesota. And she's a great asset to the Wisconsin Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired. So we're kind of really lucky that she lives close to the state line and both of our states get um, her benefit of her gifts. So Patty is a leader in our scholarship 
program selection process and also a leader on our nominating committee. So Patty, thanks so much for inviting me to be with you this morning. So I want to um, start with a little bit of what to expect while we're together this morning and then an intro. Um, so while we're together, I want to share some just very practical perspective on advocacy because sometimes I hear from folks that it's absolutely daunting. Like, where do I even begin? Um, from other folks, I hear, you know, I tried and I didn't get the change that I was hoping to see. So I'm really frustrated. Um, other folks are, you know, like I've been doing this so long, I'm getting tired. You know, how do I maintain my energy? And so a lot of what we're going to talk about today really focuses on that very practical um, advocacy that can give us a place to start if we're brand new can give us the next step if we've been doing the work for a while um, and can revitalize our energy um, at times when we're, when we're frankly getting really tired and a bit fed up. Um, what I'll invite you to do as you're listening this morning is to think about what are your personal takeaways um, that you want to carry out of this, this work together? You know, what do you want to do as your next action? And then, you know, after kind of the glow of the convention is all over, you know, Monday morning when you're kind of back into your usual routine, come back to thinking about this session again and remind yourself of what you want to do for your next action. Because that's part of really what makes excellent um, advocates is that desire to take the next step and then having the courage and energy to do so. So a little bit about me, um, I am the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired. Um, I am a person who has lived with significant vision loss uh, my entire life, and I just turned 60 uh, last couple weeks ago, and I am embracing it fully. I've earned every gray hair and every wrinkle, and I am loving it. Um, I grew up in a very rural part of Wisconsin and then moved to uh, Madison to go to school and have been fortunate enough to have uh, my career based in Madison ever since. Um, in addition to doing the work with the council and being the lead on many of our advocacy efforts, I think advocacy is just part of my bloodstream. My mom was saying the other day to me um, that there's no surprise for her that this is the work that I do because I have been advocating for myself or and or for others since I could just about talk. And uh, I have a very strong motivation to find equity and justice um, in our world. And so I'm very, very driven um, by that not only for um, those of us with blindness and vision loss, but also on many other um, things that are important to me. So it's part of my fabric. In addition to serving as executive director and doing personal advocacy in my own life, I have the great opportunity to be on the other side of the table. I am a member of the City of Madison's Transportation Commission, and uh, selected by the mayor 
and then approved by our city council to serve. And the Transportation Commission makes really key decisions about our bus, our paratransit, our um, accessible taxi program, how our streets are built um, for pedestrian um, safety, and on it goes. So um, I frequently have the opportunity to hear from the public when they come to testify before the Transportation Commission. So I get to witness other people doing advocacy work and to really pay attention to what's working, you know, with their approach and what's not working with their approach. So a little bit, um, I'm a storyteller. So I will weave stories into the talk that we do this morning to really help it come alive. So it's not just kind of um, intellectual or cognitive, but it's, you know, uh, coming from lived experience. What I'd like to do is do share the information that I've got. Then we'll take a pause for questions, both from our folks that are joining us, if that's possible, online, and then from the folks in the room. Um, and then we'll we'll wind up by 945. So uh, let's start with why advocate. I think it's obvious, you know, because there are so many things that are important to us as people who live with vision loss that we have um, both, I think, a desire, a right, and a responsibility to speak out about those things, to try to make life better for not only ourselves, but for others as well, and kind of as a way to pay it forward. You know, I know I'm where I'm at as someone with vision loss because of the work that was done by generations ahead of me or behind me. So I really want to pave a path forward for generations in front of me. Part of also why I advocate is that um, I want to connect things, connect the dots for people, you know, and so sometimes that means that I'm in allyship or partnership with other groups that have shared interest, and I'm helping to educate those groups as well as they are educating me so that we collectively have a stronger voice. And then the other reason that I advocate is that I hope to leave a lasting impression on um, legislators, on lawmakers, on policymakers, beyond just the visit that I might have had with them so that they think about us and our needs in more than one context. So if they're working on transportation, and I've talked with them about transportation barriers, maybe I'll come back into their thoughts when they're thinking about employment because of something that I said to them. So really want to get us on people's radar. So I think it's really important for all of us to get clear about why do we advocate, um, because that becomes kind of our our root or our foundation for keeping the work going. Um, There are some, for me, there are some really important um, things to, um, to ways to connect with our um, legislators. And I think it's worth taking advantage of these. We can have one-to-one meetings with them and we have the right to ask for those things. So um, you may want to reach out to your elected official and if you don't officials and if you don't know who they are, 
Minnesota has a really useful website for looking up your legislator as well as does Wisconsin. So no matter, you know, what, what state you are residing in, you can access your legislator. Many legislators may be quite open to a video meeting. And particularly after the pandemic, um, you know, that's a lot of government business got conduct- conducted online. And for some legislators, they're maintaining that. You can advocate for that online visit. And even by advocating, you're starting to help your legislator understand your needs. You know, I'm in the western part of the state. For me to get to the state capitol would involve, you know, this kind of scenario. Um, you know, I have to pay a driver or I'd spend this much time on transportation. And, you know, meeting with you is so important that I would do that. But if we could meet virtually, um, that would be so incredibly helpful. And right there, you've helped the, um, add the legislator understand a transportation barrier that's quite significant. Um, we can do phone calls with them. We can email. We can send letters. When um, legislators are back in the district, um, we can you know, have coffee with them. Sometimes that neutral space is just so great for having a conversation. Um, a fellow advocate friend of mine who is a wheelchair user um, had coffee with her state representative um, not so long ago. And when they were discussing which coffee shop to meet at, she let him know which ones were wheelchair accessible. And um, it was a literally a, a wake up call for him because he had, you know, he has easy mobility. He had never had to think about, you know, his entrance into a coffee shop. So that piece of education started right there and even just trying to establish where they were going to meet. Um, we can also um, follow them on social media, look at their web pages, you know, so that we can learn um, more about who they are. So we've got access tools more and more and more to our elected officials than we did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. When we're um, doing our advocacy work, I think it's important for us to think about what, how do we show up and um I like to show up as being the leader I want to see. And so for me, that means that I am treating that lawmaker, that policymaker with the same kind of integrity that I'd wanted to be treated with. And so I'm approaching with kindness. I'm approaching with that ability to speak truth to power, but without being hostile or angry or defensive. And I think that's really critical because we live in an age right now where there's a lot of hostility in the political space. And um, I know from being a Transportation Commission member that when folks approach us with a lot of hostility, it's like a lot of noise. And I've got to sift through all of that noise to find what are they saying that's really important and valuable. So if we can reduce that noise by how we show up and ready to be in conversation um, and to really treat that person with a lot of respect, we uh, actually are going to be far more effective because we're not going to be perceived as argumentative, fighting, or the enemy. 
My primary thought when I'm um, um, in the advocacy role is that I'm an educator. For so many of these policymakers, they have maybe never interacted with someone who is blind. So we may be that first person, or maybe they just think about the folks in their community who are older adults with vision loss. Um, and they just, they, so we are their first, their potentially their first person. And so I am wanting to use that opportunity to help them learn about the world of living with vision loss. Not all of it, you know, I have to select and be really clear about what message am I, am I sending in this particular interaction, but I am bringing forth um, issues that maybe they've not thought about before. Most people who reach out to their elected officials, frankly, rep are like that elected official. So if the elected official is a white, able-bodied man, um, they'll see more white, able-bodied men reach out to them. Maybe they'll also see more able-bodied white women reach out to them. So they get kind of caught in this echo chamber where they're already hearing about things that they know about. So when we reach out, we are bringing things to the table that, wow, maybe they've never thought about before. We're also um, trying to... Um, inform them of things, you know, things like, for example, when I meet with legislators and I'm talking about transportation, I'm helping them understand the, um, the great number of people in Wisconsin who are non-drivers so that they have a sense of what that is. In Wisconsin, 31% of our state's population are non-drivers. I looked um, to see if Minnesota had compiled a similar statistic, and you do I could not find it. It's a great advocacy ask of your State Department of Transportation to put that together. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation compiled that statistic for us at our request. And it gives me a great advocacy tool because when I share with policymakers and media that 31%, one third nearly of our state's population do not drive a car. People's jaws drop on the floor um, because they're stunned. They think non-drivers are a very tiny group and that everybody hops in their car and goes someplace. So you use this time to inform and then you use it to influence so when we say to someone, hey, you know, I'd really like you to fix the transportation system, that's frankly useless information because um, telling them you want something fixed that is so enormous that there is really very little they can do about it with that big of an ask, they'll be like, thanks for visiting me, and it will go off of their radar. But if we can break down the ask into biteable bites, like I'd like to see an increase in our specialized transportation for people with disabilities and um, older adults of 10%, and that 10% will do X, Y, and Z. Now the lawmaker has something really tangible that they can bite into. They can see the next step. So our role in our advocacy work is to build relationships, 
because so often, um, you know, relationship and visiting with someone repeatedly over time is what really changes the dial. So build relationships, educate, inform, and influence. Um, there are some really effective strategies um, for um, being a, a, um, useful in the advocacy realm on a long on, on the long haul. I think it's important for all of us to remember that advocacy, good advocacy, is a long game, and sometimes it's an absolute slog through mock. You know, these TV show things where someone advocates to change the world and everybody is like, oh, that's a great idea. And they buy into it. And by the time the episode is done, something significant has happened. That's fairy tale. So going into our advocacy work, realizing that we'll take two steps forward and then we'll take one step back and we'll take two steps forward, one step back is part of the reality. And accepting that, I think, is is really, really um, critical because otherwise this is where burnout and, and disappointment comes from. And then people throw up their hands and want to walk away. So being planful about our advocacy is just incredibly important. So if um, the Minnesota chapter, for example, has an advocacy committee or work group, Really, if you haven't done this already, I really want to encourage you to look at what your advocacy agenda is. Get clear about the four, five, six things that you want to put on that agenda so that you've got focus and you can garner support around those things. You can communicate to your membership about what we're advocating for. And you can have um, a plan for moving forward. If you're doing advocacy individually, you know, really think about the, the kind of the co- couple things that are really, really critical to you that you'd like to work on. Because having so many things that are important to you, I get it, but you'll, you, you just won't have time for, um, for doing all of it and living your life and being effective. So at the Wisconsin Council of the Blind and Visually Impaired, when I um, stepped into the executive director position, I was like, oh my goodness, we do such good advocacy work that it's kind of all over the place. So let's get clear about our advocacy priorities. And for us, they are transportation, employment, education, healthcare, long-term care, and civil rights. Now, those are huge, but they give parameters for the work that we're doing. Plus, they start communicating to lawmakers and policymakers and other advocacy groups. What are the things that we care about so that we can start building um, longer relationships? One of the other key strategies is to do your homework. So, um, you know, we often hear people go to their legislator, um, their policymaker, their local official, and they tell their story, which is really compelling and really important, but they don't connect their story to something bigger. So, um, for example, when I talk about voting rights with legislators, I tell my own story of not having access to an accessible absentee ballot. 
So if I'm voting absentee in the state of Wisconsin, uh, my ballot comes in the mail. It's in about eight point font. I absolutely cannot see it. And um, I can't magnify it. It's Obviously, it's paper, so it's not screen reader accessible. So if I want to vote absentee, I have to have someone I trust vote the ballot for me based on my direction, which leaves me very vulnerable and doesn't allow me to vote privately and independently. Now, that in itself is a story that often gets the attention of legislators, but it's easy enough to say, well sorry, Denise, that's a bummer, and kind of dismiss it because it's only nested in my own experience. So I need to bring, you know, this is true for other folks. I need to bring that in. I need to talk about what the solutions might be, you know, of transmission of that ballot um, via email so I can interact with it with my screen reader. I need to talk about how what other states are doing so that there's a model And then I need to relate it to the Federal Voting Rights Act, you know, that all voters, um, including voters with disabilities, have the right to vote privately and independently and not having that um, ballot be accessible is a violation of the Voting Rights Act. So I kind of need to paint the whole picture, not just my story. And I don't know about you, but I didn't come out, um, you know, of the womb knowing that information. I had to study it learn it, talk to other people who know about voting rights, and expand my knowledge base. So really doing my homework. Um, You want to know where the policymaker that you are going to visit with stands on an issue. Because sometimes we end up preaching to the choir. And I've seen this happen so many times. Everybody's ready with their story. And they take, you know, often you get a half an hour with a lawmaker. That's it. Um, Sometimes it's only 15 minutes. So you got to make the most of that time. So sometimes they'll come, people will come in all excited. They'll make their case. And the lawmaker is like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Now we've used up all the time and we don't have time to do strategy with the lawmaker. Or the lawmaker doesn't know much at all. And so we've got to paint that picture for them. So there's a lot of good ways we can learn about where the lawmaker stands on something. We can use their social media. We can look at their blog. Uh, We can look at their web page. We can listen to them at town halls. Um, A lot of those are available virtually. Um, We can even call the office for uh, pre visit conversation to say, where does so-and-so, um, st- you know, what are their thoughts about transportation? But we need to do, and we can do it in the meeting. You know, we can ask them, you know, help me understand kind of where you sit with this issue of voting access for people with disabilities. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to know where you're coming from on that. And then we can, we can learn from them, but we've got to do our homework. Sometimes what happens is we, and I've witnessed this um, recently with meeting with a, a state leader around transportation equity. And so there were four of us in the, in the meeting, different advocates from different perspectives. And I kicked it off and I talked with her about the barriers facing people with disabilities and older adults, you know, use the 31% marker. She was fascinated. There was a lot of good dialogue going on between the two of us. I turned it then to one of the other advocates who started repeating 
a lot of the message and I could hear the um, uh, legislator get quiet, kind of disengage, kind of start to, I'm guessing, space out. And I was like, oh, boy, we're going to lose her. And um, so, you know, then I gently interceded and asked the other advocates, are there new things that we have not yet shared with our senator that would be good to touch base on so that we didn't keep kind of wasting her time telling her the same thing that she had already heard or that she already knew. Um, And then we were able to get into a much deeper conversation about the upcoming state budget. Um, You also want to know kind of where to make a difference. So um, we um, uh, sometimes I I remember not too long ago hearing from um, uh, uh, an advocate that she was really frustrated that her roadway was very unsafe and she really wanted to have an accessible pedestrian signal installed. And um, she wrote to her senator and said, we need an accessible PED signal here. And her senator's office contacted her back and said, well, that's not my, that's not my jurisdiction. That's your county's jur- jurisdiction. I can't help you. And she was so upset because she felt like her senator was ignoring her. And I'm like, oh, I can understand why you're angry about this. But your senator gave you such great information. He told you he's not the right person, but he told you who the right person is, and that's your county supervisor. So the road is owned by your county, not by the state. And so let's now work with your county supervisor to see what we can do. And she was very effective once she was talking to the to the right decision maker. Also know where you are in the cycle of your of the decision making process. Here in Wisconsin, we are kicking into high gear for um, working on the next two year state budget. So I know that when I interact with legislators right now, I want to hit them up with budget conversations and budget asks. I don't really want to hit them up with other new legislation, new bills, because their ears and eyes and minds are filled with budget, 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 budget. And so if I'm asking for something that's not budget related, it could get forgotten. So I want to circle back on that thing um, after the budget is settled down a little bit. Um, Let's see, I think I have just a couple more things um, that I want to touch base on because I'm paying attention to time. I think expectation management is super important because this is where I hear folks get embittered is when you have an expectation, it doesn't get met. And then it's like, well, why bother? So um, again, really circling back on the fact that lawmakers simply sometimes just don't know. And sometimes out of that not knowing They may say things that we could perceive as really offensive, and we need to just take a deep breath and depersonalize. So um, several years ago, I wanted to meet with a state legislator who was the um, head of the employment committee in the state assembly. And he had introduced some really good legislation that would have benefited um, 
people with developmental disabilities in the employment sector. And I'm like, oh, great. I'd like to meet with him because maybe I can have a conversation with him about the employment needs of people with um, vision loss, which are very different than the employment needs of someone with um, developmental disabilities, but he's got it. There's an opening. So I went in to meet with him. I had a colleague with me and he was just utterly fascinated that I wasn't a piano tuner or a, ca- a chain, you know, somebody who caned chairs. Because in his mind, that's what people with blindness did. We tuned pianos, we weave baskets and fix chairs. And, you know, initially, I could have been incredibly, incredibly offended by that. So I took a deep breath. I kept my mouth shut. And I listened to him a little bit more. And as I, as he lit, as I listened, I learned how much he loved music and how much that piano tuner that he had seen as a small child who came to his school meant to him because the piano was tuned and it was really the music class was like a highlight of his day. And so I listened and then I said to him, wow, it's so cool that you have such a positive impression of that person that you met as a little kid with blindness. Now I want to invite you to notice, you know, what happens if the only jobs that might be available to someone with blindness would be that piano tuning or, you know, weaving um, chairs like we talked about when I first came in. He said, well, that would be terrible. I would not only want to, I want to, I want to have more choices than just two things to do. Like bingo, that's why I'm here. I'm here to talk about all the potential skills and talents that we have as people with blindness and how we can craft our legislation to open more opportunities for people with vision loss. Okay. Now we have common ground to be working off of. So um, really paying attention to um, letting go of personalizing, getting your feelings hurt, taking that deep breath and remembering that legislators are starting where they, what they know, what they, what they've experienced. Um, Policy change takes a ton of time. So really think about what your win is. So um, in Wisconsin, we have a non-driver advisory committee. Again, something I don't think you have in Minnesota. Something would be great for you to advocate for. Um, we I went to we went to our Secretary of Transportation and said we see real value in this. It would have diverse membership from state agencies that have transportation program. You know, we can see um, legislators serving on this. We can see advocates serving on it that represent uh, marginalized groups and that we would collectively work to identify problems and get stuff done. The first Department of Transportation secretary I met with was like, oh, that's a nice idea, Denise. Thanks. But can we just talk about white cane safety? Like, all right, got it. So now how can I work on white cane safety with this person? And But I still kept that idea of the non-driver advisory committee in my mind. I started talking with other disability and aging advocates, and they're like, yeah, we've been thinking about this too, and we think it's a really good idea. So then the administration changed. I went in to the secretary's office. I said, I have this idea. 
And, um, and then my colleagues went in and they're like, we have this idea. And the first year he was like, huh, interesting idea. Thanks for sharing. The next year when I went back, I'm like, I still have this idea. And he's like, yep, I have this idea too. I really love it. I've had time to think about it, talk about it. And we're going to put in place a non-driver advisory committee. I'm like, awesome. Hope I get to serve um, as a member. I'm now the co-chair of that advisory committee. And um, it's the first state advisory committee that is co-chaired with members who are not just the members of the um, staff of that department. So it took three years. And we're three years into this committee and making some incredibly good work happen. So that change is slow. Um, It's a drip, drip, drip. Um, and all of a sudden, there's a bigger puddle because we've been dripping into it for a while. Um, let's see. Integration, I will say, is really, really key. I think that that has been a significant shift in the work that we've been doing with the Wisconsin Council. Is We know we have incredibly important things to advocate for as people with vision loss. How can we build allyships and connections with people who share some of our same concerns so that we're not that one tiny voice? Uh, We amplify our voice. So we, for example, are um, members of the Wisconsin Disability Vote Coalition, and I am on that steering committee, and it represents a broad range of disability groups and aging groups, and we now have a big voice. Media reach out to us um, for interviews. I've done a number of interviews on accessible um, and um, voting and barriers to voting for people with disabilities in the last three to four years. The Non-Driver Advisory Committee has members from the disability community, the poverty community, um, the, um, you know, um, just a whole host, the environmental and climate change community. Um, and um, so those kinds of how does our issue tap into other people's issues so that we can combine our voices, plus the learning um, within those groups is profound. You know, so many of my other disability um, advocate colleagues knew so little about blindness, and now they are fantastic advocates. Sometimes we'll be in a meeting, and they will bring up an issue of concern to the blindness community before I do. And I'm like, oh, that's a win. Or I'll bring up issues faced by people with hearing impairment, um, hearing loss, before someone else does. And that opens the door for the conversation. So that integration is really, really critical. The last thing I'll say um, as I wind up is please vote. It is the it is a fundamental, quintessential advocacy tool that every single person has a right and a responsibility to use. It breaks my heart when people say, well, I really want to get involved in advocacy. And I'm like, fantastic. When's the last time you voted? Oh, I don't vote. I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold the phone. So um, I know that Wisconsin has some upcoming elections that are really critical. Um, we will be electing a new Supreme Court judge this spring. And that is very important when we have, um, when we have split government. 
um, because more and more things end up in the courts. So if you are a Wisconsin person, please educate yourself about the um, Supreme Court election. The Wisconsin Disability Vote Coalition is hosting um, a webinar next Thursday night. You can look it up on Wisconsin Disability Vote Coalition about the Supreme Court elections and why they matter to people with a variety of disabilities. Uh, Minnesota, I don't think you have any statewide elections this year, but you do have local ones. And I was on your uh, Secretary of State website this morning. It is an accessible website, and there's great information. There's a calendar right on the front about when the elections are going to be, when you need to get your absentee ballot in. It's a really great resource. So if you have not visited that, please do. And you also have an excellent page, again, screen reader accessible for the most part. I ran into a couple hitches, but workable um, for looking up your state legislators. So um, I could talk about this stuff forever. You can tell. I think Patty's word enthusiastic um, (laughs) might be a good one. Um, But I really believe in the power um, of our lived experience to help pave a path forward for those of us who live with blindness to create a better and more equitable world um, for us, but even more importantly, for our future generations. So um, again, what did you take from today? What are you going to do based on today? So um, I didn't give us a lot of extra time, but I'm going to We do have here. a few minutes for questions. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. So Thank you. What, what I'm going to do here in, uh, first of all, Lucy, in Zoom, if you have any raised hands, I'll call on you in a couple of minutes. If anyone in the room has a question, please raise your hand. I think to save time, if you have a question, we'll call on you. Repeat, tell me the question and I'll repeat it over the microphone. Perfect. Does anyone in the room have a raised hand? I do. All right. Who? Uh, that's me, Nick Kobe. Yes. And I was wondering, you mentioned health care and the priorities that you have in Wisconsin. What is it? What are you advocating for there? Nikki Kobe wants to know about health care, what you're advocating for in Wisconsin. Oh, thank you. Love this question. So um, first of all, Medicaid expansion. Wisconsin is not a Medicaid expansion state, um, which is so sad because we are leaving important federal dollars on the table. And those dollars would um, allow folks who are a little further away from the poverty level to be able to um, get on Badger care um, and then have be properly insured. The other thing that we are advocating for is um, our um, Office for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So our state services that come from money from the Independent Living Older Blind Grant. We have seen um, the state's um, portion of that and the federal portion of that has remained stable for, you know, for more than a decade, which really means it's decreased. And we know that in Wisconsin, um, 110,000 people, um, probably more experience vision loss. The great number of them um, are not seeking um, rehabilitation services that would really allow for independence um, and living safely and living, um, continuing to live at home and not be institutionalized. And there's no way that the services that are available now can um, meet the ever-growing demand. So those are those are some of the really biggies that we are looking for. 
um, kind of a smaller ask is for um, the state to put in place a um, um, a tax credit for folks when they buy um, a- adaptive and um, access technology, um, because we all know that none of that is carried under insurance. Uh, we continue to advocate for Medicaid to cover um, rehabilitation services and um, uh, um, devices, um, but you know, without Medicaid expansion, um, the, those Medicaid dollars are really, really tight. So we're not making a lot of headway on that. But bringing that up, I think, is really important. Our website will have our advocacy priorities uh, documents on it soon, uh, wcblind.org. So, um, you know, watch for those to be updated um, because we'll have those direct asks. And I'd love to ask anybody who would want to, even Minnesota folks, to join our advocacy e-news because we always take an issue, talk about what the issue is, what we're doing around advocating, and then what you can do. So there's a lot of real good hands-on practical advice in those. Uh, Thanks for that question. It was a great one. Thank thank you. Do we have any questions in Zoom, Lucy? Nope, not at this time. I'm going to see. Do we have one more question in the room? What? Rocky. Yes, Rocky. Rocky, can you speak up just a tad so I can hear you? Yes, yes. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I really appreciate you. Um, one of the questions I have, because I've been involved in this for seven years now, um, I, I know one of the things that sometimes, one of the criticism that comes my way and the way of some other advocates is, well, you guys are just playing over the deck, you know. Um, you've been advocating for all these, all these crazy things, and, and you know that you're not going to get those things, and you just need to essentially calm down and, you know, not have to keep that How would you answer that criticism, number one? And number two, what can we do to ensure that we are Uh, Rocky Hart would like to know, he said, sometimes when you go to do some advocating and you're asking for a lot, and I think Denise kind of covered this, you want to make sure you're asking for what you need. So what Rocky wanted to know, Denise, is if you ask for a lot of questions, ask for a lot of advocacy issues, and you're kind of overwhelming the person that you're advocating with, where do you draw the line and how, what's the best way to advocate for what's really important and how do you prioritize what's important? Is that, Oh, that, this is such a great question, Rocky. That, Thank you. So that your question, Rocky, did I get that correctly? Okay. Yeah. Um, Thank you. That's such a it's a really great question. So I, I want to be sensitive to time. So I'll answer it as briefly as I can. So, you know, going into a legislator's office, you really want to just bring one or two key issues. Um, but you always want to leave them with a uh, leave behind. So, um, for example, I will, um, and I'll think about what issue is that person really connected with. So if they're really, if they're on the transportation committee or they really care about voting um, or they are um, really care deeply about health, then that's my top issue. I just recently had time with the governor's office. And so I knew I had a half an hour. I picked three issues, health care, transportation and voting. 
And I gave them a very quick synopsis of the issue, a quick story, and then my one ask. And we were able to cover those three issues, still giving the policy person time to ask questions, make comments. And then I followed up with a policy document, you know, a write-up of the, what I had said and some links of information where they could go further, a connection back to our website or, a, you know, other organizations' website. And also that included a thank you, um, which is something I didn't mention, but that that thank you is your gateway to coming back or to reconnecting. Um, and if a legislator asks you a question you can't answer, don't worry about it. That's awesome because it gives you another reason to reconnect with them. So you can simply say, hey, that's a great um, question. I don't know the answer to it. Let me find out and I'll be back in touch. And then you have carried out a longer um, string of opportunity. But yeah, I would say in a half an hour meeting, more than two or three things and they will be overwhelmed. Well, in closing, with her saying thanks, I want to definitely thank Denise for what she's given us this morning and all the information she shared, and hopefully we can pick up the pace now and start advocating more within um, the state of Minnesota. So thank you so much, Denise, and have a great day. <laughs> you too. Thank you all so much. Take good care. Okay, moving into our next program, I hope my three individuals have, have appeared in the room. Um, we're going to be having, what? Okay, that's Kristen? Yep. Yep. Okay, okay. And Terry? Yes. And John? Okay, we're now going to have a brief review, and we're going to look ahead in 2023 in the field of educating blind and visually impaired students in, a, in our state. We're going to hear from um, John Davis, who is the director of the Minnesota Academy for the Blind in Faribault. And Terry Welding is the superintendent of the Minnesota State Academies, who will, Mr. Welding will have a, an interpreter um, interpret what he has to say. And our third person is Kristen Oyen, who is the specialist for the blind and visually impaired in the Minnesota Department of Education, and who I actually worked under when I was an itinerant teacher of the blind and visually impaired in the state of Wisconsin. So the three of you, John, would you like to begin? Seated in the back corner, this is the interpreter speaking for Terry. Good morning, everyone. I am Terry Wilding from MS, Minnesota State Academies. It's great to be here in person. I know it's been a while. We haven't had a chance. Oh, a little closer. Is that better? There we go. Thank you. So I just have a few updates, and then I'll turn it over to John, and he can speak more about the activities going on at the School for the Blind. So in general, um, we are continuing to work through various programs, expanding services, supporting our students, both at the School for the Blind as well as statewide, looking for different ways that we can make those improvements to services. We've been working on a five-year strategic plan um, of course, there have been some challenges working through COVID, making some adjustments to activities and things, but uh, we have made it through that phase now, and I think we're in our last year now of that strategic plan, meaning we are starting to review everything we've done thus far and trying to figure out the plan for what's coming next in that next five-year section. So if you have suggestions or things that you think the school can do for our students and our alumni, the community in general, please do reach out and let us know. 
Uh, somebody just re uh, recently talked about the advocacy piece. And I think that there's a lot of information in our activities with the legislatures this year that we are going to continue to work with the legislators about the biannual budget and making different requests for additions to the budget so that we can do more. Um, I think the biggest thing annually is we ask for the operations budget. That includes a variety of instructional activities, student programs, those kinds of things. And we're trying to um, be able to do more outreach, statewide assessment services, things of that nature. So hopefully we're going to be get the funding from the legislature and be able to help us develop that, get those people trained, get the equipment in the hands of people who need them. So specifically also for deaf and blind out in the state. Um, that's one of our bigger requests this year. Uh, we have other requests as well, including construction funding. We are asking for um, new funding to support renovations of the dorms at the blind school. Uh, we, did, we did recently install new heating cooling system, but we still need to do a little bit more accommodations for um, making the building more friendly. Um, so I think that's going to be one part of the request to the legislature to make the dorm more accessible. So if you have an opportunity to work with your local representatives at the state level, I encourage you, do reach out to them and encourage them to support our requests as they come through this year, both for the operations budget and the bonding for accessibility. So I think that's kind of it from me for now. I will turn it over to John and he can give a little bit more of an update on what's happening at the blind school. Good morning. It's nice to see everybody. Um, so uh, just some updates on what's going on at the Academy for the Blind. Um, this last summer, we did expand our, our summer program, our extended school year program, to three weeks. And we served 65 students during that time. We're also going to have the same length of time next, this coming summer, running July 10th through the 27th. Currently on campus, we have 46 students. Um, we just had a couple new students join us, and we are continuing to have um, parents and students come and visit our uh, program, looking to enroll within the next semester or next year. Um, some of the special programs we're doing, you know, we still are running our um, sports programming and our wrestling team just was at the conference championship, and they took third place. Our goalball team took fourth place back in the fall. And we will be running our uh, goalball tournament on campus at the end of February. Uh, the 24th and 25th, we're looking to have teams from South Dakota, possibly North Dakota, Iowa, and maybe Kansas. So we're looking forward to that. Um, we Right before the winter break, we had our winter program. It was our rock band and um, choir per, um, had their program. Um, and part of that program, they highlighted music that they had developed with a individual named Bionic, uh, one of our artists in residencies that was in the fall. You can find those songs that the kids wrote and helped produce in our sound recording studio on campus on our SoundCloud um, account, but I believe there is a link on our website to that. If, if not on the website, 
through our um, Facebook page. And I will double check that to make sure. Um, then coming up in May or April, we're going to have another artist in residency, Nanillo. Um, I believe that is another one that's centered around music. And our spring program, we're looking at doing a whole school spring, spring program, which we would be live streaming um, late April, early May. Uh, we did not live stream our winter program because they were the rock band was performing songs that are current songs. So to be able to meet the um, the requirements for a uh, um, yeah copyright material, and so we wouldn't lose our um, uh, our our page. <laughs> we we did record it. We have it on a, um, a DVD and. A, some stuff there, um, uh, digital recording on our, our server. So if you're interested, you can con contact us and we can maybe send you out a copy of that. We just can't live stream it. Um, let's see. And then one other thing that, oh, another thing that we're looking to develop on campus in association with our foundation is a greenhouse. We want to set up a nice, a uh, new greenhouse. Um, we're looking at a location, if you've been on our campus, just to the north of the old industrial building. Um, that's a pretty flat area. Um, those of you who may remember, I believe that was West Cottage. That was that site. So that's where we're looking at. Um, we're kind of trying to decide if we're going to do hydroponics in it or a combination of hydroponics and just a regular greenhouse. But we want to use that greenhouse in association both with our science program for STEM type of um, instruction as well as our work program. So that's, that's an ongoing uh, process that we're doing with our foundation. They're looking to raise money through grants from outside um, grant providers. So hopefully we'll get the money in place and get that constructed pro hopefully with, I think our plan is within the next year. So we're looking forward to that. And one final thing that's coming up, there's a deaf blind, the National Deaf Blind Conference in Austin. We're, we're sending four staff from our campus and I believe one staff from the, the Academy for the Deaf who is the BVI instructor on that campus to go to that. So we're looking forward to the information they bring back to our staff to be able to share with our staff and be able to help serve our students better. And with that, I think probably maybe take some questions for us and then pass it on to Kristen. First of all, if anyone in the room has a question, please raise your hand and State your name, speak loudly when you're recognized so that I can repeat the question. <laughs> Do we have any hand raised? I have a question about the greenhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Will the greenhouse produce like food for the students? I know a lot of schools are doing community gardening and then they're able to use the food that's produced in more children. Thank you. Kelly Harrison wants to know if the greenhouse will provide food for MSAB students. Yes, that was part so of... So similar to a community garden. Yeah, and this is John Davis again. Yes, that is part of the the program we want to do, kind of that um, the, the food-to-table type of program with the uh, our dining 
uh, program as well as the, the STEM stuff for just learning how to, what's the process of, of plants growing and that kind of stuff. And then the work program would be growing plants and then selling them as part of their project. So, Thank you. Any other questions in the room? Lucy, any questions in Zoom? No questions. All right. Thank you, Lucy. All right. Let's go on to Kristen then. Good morning. Good morning. Uh My name is Kristen Oyen, and I'm the specialist for the blind and visually impaired at the Minnesota Department of Education. Patty asked me to present around a review of the education of children who are blind and or visually impaired looking ahead into 2023. I will highlight a few successes and challenges with you today, and I'll start with the good news. One of our recent successes is the Minnesota Access Center, or MAC, Open Office Hours. The MAC Open Office Hours provide a platform for special education teachers to meet the first and third Tuesday of every month to connect with low-incidence specialists, colleagues, and vendors to learn about projects and accessibility resources. Eric Nelson from the Low Vision Store, Earl Harrison from HIMSS, representatives from the State Services for the Blind and American Printing House are at each meeting to answer device or program-specific questions. Assistive technology is usually our number one need for professional development for teachers of the blind and visually impaired, and the MAC is providing regular opportunities to share resources and information. Two months ago, we had um, Eli Lubroff and Stephen Clover from Desmos present on using the graphing calculator to better understand slope and how to use audio trace to hear graphs. Last week, we had Richard Rueda from American Printing House for the Blind share information and resources from the Career Connect Center which includes Family Connect, Career Connect, the APH Transition Hub, Vision Aware, and a National Directory of Services for individuals who are visually impaired. And I'm going to pause here and just, if if you folks have any questions (laughs) as I fly through this, you can either ask now or wait till the end. But um, Another success is our Summer Transition Program, or STP. This past June, we had 16 high school students complete the 16-day comprehensive residential transition program at the University of St. Thomas. STP provides opportunities for our students to practice independent living skills through supervised apartment living, explore potential careers through job shadowing opportunities, discover community resources designed to meet employment recreation, and leisure needs, explore post-secondary training opportunities, address unique social and emotional issues, utilize orientation and mobility skills within a metropolitan environment, access disability-specific assistive technology, practice work readiness skills through volunteer opportunities, and gain work experience. We already have 21 students signed up for this summer's STP, which will run from June 16th to June 26th. We also held our yearly low vision clinics on October 12th, 13th, and 14th. 
optometrist from the Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota prescribed 105 low-vision devices to 48 students from the southeast, central, and metro areas of Minnesota. The various magnifiers, monocular aids, and sunshields often increased visual access by two to three lines on near and distance acuity charts, enabling students with low vision to better utilize the vision they have. Now I'll share a few of the challenges we are experiencing. One of our most pressing needs is the current teacher shortage. Certified orientation mobility specialists and teachers of the blind and visually impaired are in high demand, with a third of these professionals in Minnesota retiring in the next two to three years. Currently, Minnesota does not have a BVI-approved university program. Our BVI Advisory Committee has worked diligently to increase awareness of this need through our biennial BVI legislative reports, a BVI feasibility study, and time spent at legislative committee hearings. We're addressing this challenge by, one, increasing the amount of tuition supports through the statewide low incidence grant, two, coordinating with statewide low-incident grants to provide monthly face-to-face coaching opportunities for adults in out-of-state TBVI and O&M programs. These sessions include demonstrations, discussions, and presentations related to the coursework and caseloads for that semester, as well as opportunities for hands-on experience with materials and equipment. Number three, we're coordinating with a statewide low incident grant to provide a Minnesota Mentoring Program, or MMP, to support new TBVI and comms with an experienced mentor that they can connect with when they have questions, concerns, or positives to share. Lastly, we're developing new strategies to recruit an, ef- an effective special education workforce. Another huge challenge that children and youth who are BVI face in Minnesota is access to material and testing. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, requires educational material to to be presented to our students who are BVI in the most appropriate and accessible format at the same time as their peers. Online and digital learning platforms are not always fully accessible to our students. And school teams need to know that videos that are not audio described, teacher made material that is not properly tagged, and pictures or graphs without alternative text are absolutely not acceptable. We are addressing this challenge by supporting local education agencies with accessible educational material, or AEM, AIM guidance and resources in curriculum choice, procurement, and accessibility testing. As we begin or we continue in 2023, MDE will provide the following professional development opportunities for TBVI and comms in Minnesota. On February 9th, Carrie Luders from Salis University and Justine Taylor from the American Printing House for the Blind will be presenting on the topic of low vision and we will share about the functional impact of lighting and glare, the process for conducting a lighting assessment, the process for conducting a wearable filter evaluation, the provision and use of low vision devices, and the American Printing House for the Blind low vision products. 
On April 21st, Dr. Penny Rosenblum and Dr. Mona Minkara will be presenting on the topic of self-advocacy and self-determination, and will be describing the components of the Finding Wheels book, consideration for travelers who are blind and low vision around safety, rideshare services, low vision driving, bicycling with low vision, and working with drivers. We'll also talk about new ways to teach and increase self-determination skills and strategies to increase student access to higher level coursework like AP and post-secondary education opportunities. Minnesota TV and comms will also hear from a panel of recent high school graduates regarding what supports were most beneficial to them while they started college and what they wished they had learned while they were still in high school. Our overall goal at the Minnesota Department of Education continues to be that children and youth in Minnesota who are blind and visually impaired receive quality, standards-based instruction and appropriate supports that will lead to their highest level of independence and success. Please know that we welcome suggestions for effective change. Feel free to contact me with concerns or ideas for the future. My email address is k-r-i-s-t-i-n dot o-i-e-n at state dot m-n dot u-s and my phone number is 651-582-8843. Thank you again for the opportunity to share this MDE update with you and enjoy the rest of your conference. And if anyone has any questions, uh, why don't you just uh, call out your name and ask the question. Thank you so much, Kristen and John and Terry. Do we have any questions in the room? All right. Thank you for the report and the time that you put this together. It's just sad and lightning. And you're talking about two years short. So, I guess, you know, the two people in the room are very, very knowledgeable. And sometimes, even in the study population, they have volunteers work with educators. You know, what they certify, we have five volunteers here. For picking meetings, well, for instance, what's the next care to continue the workload off? I know it's not suggesting. Thank you, Carl. So, Carl's question is Is there any opportunity for people who are very proficient Braille readers who want to be volunteers to help take some of the workload off the teacher shortage? And this is Kristen Oyen. I think that's a wonderful idea if we had volunteers. We'd have to work with the local schools where the students attend um, and also their teacher of the blind and visually impaired to to see if that's, um, you know, how that could be arranged. Uh, best practice Braille instruction, uh, should they should be reading Braille every day. And so... Um, uh, I think that's a great idea if we even like a before or after school type of uh, situation where a volunteer would come and, and read Braille with students. I myself is a issue of walking 15 miles, but I have to use several travel techniques to finish that so Carl's also asking about being O&M volunteer. 
this is Kristen. That gets a little trickier because yeah. of um, uh, because of the liability. Yeah, the liability involved. Um, yeah, that that one we'd have to kind of work out. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions in the room? Yes, Debbie. Okay. Um, can you talk about the accessibility issues with online learning platforms here? Um, I'm assuming you were going to take well, but does your department have any influence over anybody who's in post-secondary education? So. Debbie wants to know about online learning for post-secondary education, if if you have any involvement in that, or you're just through secondary education. Yeah, this is Kristen. We do not have any say over what happens in post-secondary, but I am part of the transition committee with the State Services for the Blind and also on the State Rehab Council for the Blind. Um, and so we definitely discuss those types of issues for post-secondary situations in those committees and platforms. So that's where you would go with your concerns. Thank I, you. I uh, oh, Patty, I'm going to pass the microphone to you. Kristen and, and I talked, and she realizes I'm an educator, and there's a committee that, that I'm currently applying for through Kristen, and I can't pull it up because I can't get on internet right now. Kristen, what is the name of that, that uh, advisory committee? Mm -hmm. That This is Kristen. That's the, um, the Blind and Visually Impaired Advisory Committee. It's a state legislative uh, mandated committee, um, and we have always strived to have um, all of the private nonprofit advocacy um, folks be on that committee. So we don't have anyone currently from the Minnesota um, Academy, uh, the American Council for the Blind. So um, yeah, so it'd be great, Patty, if, if you applied and you could join us. But we do have representatives from State Services for the Blind, the academies, National Federation for the Blind, parents, and we are also looking for a student representative on our committee. And that committee is responsible for um, uh, lending and approving uh, our once every two years BVI legislative report. We also approve um, the ACV REP, the Academy for Certification of Education Rehabilitation Professionals, um, the CEUs for the Orientation Mobility Specialists, and we also approve um, expenditures for the Minnesota Resource Libraries. Um, in, in, in their off year, uh, the BVI advisory committees create resources that are specific to students who are blind and visually impaired. And they have made some amazing resources, which are housed on the MDE welcome back packet, um, of the BVI site and things like, uh, resources around music braille, teaching O&M virtually and distance learning, um, uh, we've we've uh, worked on a person-centered practices, ten-step suggestions for IEP meetings, and currently the group is working on a, a mental health resources specific to students who are blind and visually impaired. And oh my goodness, I'm looking at John. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, no. I just. Yeah, I'm on the on the <laughs> on the committee as well. We've also done produced um, resources for student-led IEPs 
for BVI instructors. We've produced um, a kind of a hand or sheet for special ed directors to kind of have an understanding of what their needs are and what the BVI is responsible for. Um, also, caseload workload analysis for them to look at so they are appropriately staffing for the students that they have in their district really all kinds of stuff um sheila is also on the sheila koenig is also on that committee as well so and i know we're running out of time with all this wonderful information and i want to thank thank these three people and i have just been asked to serve on the task force of the american council of the blind the special education task force so that's a big step in in our direction to have someone from the midwest on that um, committee so once again i want to thank terry and john and kristen for all the information they provided us this morning And now the fun begins. We are going to do a door prize. This is going to two of them, actually. First one's going to be for an in-house door prize because it's a, a container of uh, honey with a honey pot given by Barb um, Appleby. Okay, and that goes to Stephanie Hall. Okay, Stephanie, we'll find you and get that to you. Oh, okay, and now for the... Um, Zoom people, we are going to give a Hobby Lobby gift card. And that goes to Donna Brown of West Virginia. All right, Donna. Another teacher. <laughs> yes. All right. And then we are going to be on a short break until 1030. So take a quick stretch. If you have to run down the hallway, please go ahead and do so. But you don't want to miss our next portion. So be back by 1030. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, may we have your attention so we can continue with our program this morning. Thank you, everyone, for quickly coming back. Our next person on our agenda is uh, exciting for a lot of us in the state of Minnesota, and she's going to be talking about what's up and coming at the Minnesota Library and the NLS. And Catherine Durridge is the Library Program Director at the Minnesota Braille and Talking Book Library. Catherine, welcome to our morning session. I want to thank uh, Janet and company for extending an invitation to me to speak today at your convention. I'm just going to go over some highlights uh, at the library itself and then talk about some things that are happening at the national level. Um, it's been an interesting couple of years, uh, but I'm happy to report that we uh, do have um, open hours now so that we are open to the public. A uh, little bit different hours than in the past. We are open Tuesday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, and uh, Oh, that's um, on-site hours, but you can call us Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Um, if you don't reach us, please leave us a message, and we also will um, contact you or accept emails. So many ways to reach out to us, but if you do want to make a visit, just kind of keep in mind that we're only open uh, Tuesday through Thursday uh, to the public. And, of course, many of you contact us by phone. Um, I thought you might want to know that about on average, we get about 50-plus calls a day. That's not including emails or um, uh, the physical mail that comes in. But many of you are using email to reach us, which is fantastic. Uh, 
And Mondays are our busiest day. I feel like we're kind of like doctor's offices where you wait till Monday morning to call us. But regardless, we always enjoy hearing from you. But, you know, um, even with the calls that we get, we're actually seeing experiencing a little bit less calls per day. And I'm going to talk about why I think that is in just a little bit. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about our volunteer recording program. Uh, our uh, recording program right now is almost entirely remote. That is, the majority of our narrators are recording from home. And we started offering uh, at-home narration at the beginning of the pandemic. And it turns out many of our narrators actually prefer this method. Uh, so uh, we are happy that we do have probably about a half a dozen narrators uh, that are recording for us. We did last January, can't believe it's a year ago, we hired a temporary employee who started to work on converting some of our previously cassette titles, including uh, ones that we recorded by State Services for the Blind, um, we wanted to convert some of those cassettes into barred ready titles. And if you can imagine, it is very time consuming to do this. The person has to listen to the entire recording and um, add the right markers to indicate chapters and beginning and end a book. Unfortunately, because he was a temporary employee, his last day was this past Wednesday. We really do hope we can continue this work in the future. And um, so, but at this point, what we're doing now is working with uh, our at-home narrators. And we also, maybe for those that use BARD, may have discovered that we did produce and post to BARD three text-to-speech recordings. Um, we did those. They are the Museum Mystery Series. They're for children. They're short books. And as far as we know, we were the first network library to actually produce a text-to-speech recording and put them on BARD. So I think that's quite an accomplishment. We still are going to use um, uh, uh, volunteer narrators for the majority of our uh, Minnesota-based recordings, but uh, we realized there are some technologies out there that we could use to create some more content. The other thing we're doing uh, to get more books up on BARD for you here in Minnesota is that NLS is, has this commercial recordings project, which they will send to us the commercial recording, maybe a book recorded by Random House or Hatchet or Audible, and we take that recording and mark it up. And that means add the right navigation markers and then post it to BARD. And what that means for us, we get credit for whoever downloads that book. It counts as a statistic for Minnesota. And you, as a user of BARD and the service, you get access to more books. So I think that's a win-win for all of us. And we look forward to being able to get more of the books that people like, for example, we completed, I think we completed all the David Housewright books. Um, we added a bunch of Ellery Queen books, so, uh, Lorraine Snelling books. Uh, so uh, quite a few very popular authors and titles are on BARD because of work that we're doing here in Minnesota. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we had seen a decrease in the number of calls that we're getting. And we attributed that to the books on demand. Uh, 
process that we switched over in November of 2020. And so two years in uh, to this process, we are definitely seeing its impact on our service. Um, like I said, we're not getting as many phone calls from you folks about where are my books or I need more books. Of course, we get those calls, but they're fewer. And we think this is because we can put multiple books on a cartridge and that allows you greater and immediate access to the collection. What has happened is that we have seen like 11% increase in circulation over the past couple of years. And that does not include the almost 90,000 um, barred Braille and audio downloads that you folks here in Minnesota have, have um, downloaded from BARD. So just for you know about books on demand, uh, we can put anywhere from one to 24 books on a cartridge. I've been asked why we limit 24 is because that's the number of titles that will print on the address card. So for folks that want to keep track of that or want to know what's on the book uh, cartridge, we limit to 24. So we can put in some cases the entire series on a cartridge or books by a certain author or subject. It really is kind of up to you on terms of what you're asking for. Uh, so I think the response has been very favorable in terms of this change. But if you are not getting enough books, need more books on a cartridge, need more book cartridges, please reach out. Uh, we want to make sure that you are getting what you would like um, uh, if you're getting the material from us by mail. So I'm going to go over to a little bit some of the stuff that's happening with NLS, and I, I hope some of you are taking advantage of this new service. It's called Braille on Demand, and this is where NLS will allow you. I see some hand claps in the audience there. Uh, NLS allows you now to request up to five hard copy Braille books per month for you to keep for your personal use. You have to submit each um, book request as a separate request. You can't put all five on one order form or one online uh, request. But there's over 16,000 um, Braille titles that are available on BARD that are available for you to request. That is the caveat. The book must be on BARD in order for you to request it. And you can only request complete titles. That means you can't request volume three only of like a four volume set. You have to request the whole title. But there is an online form for those of you that maybe don't have access to internet or don't want to fill out the form, call us or email us and tell us and we will get the form submitted on your behalf. I checked recently and I mean, there's thousands of requests from all over the country for these Braille uh, uh, on-demand titles. So I really hope you take advantage of it. Uh, and for those of you that want your own personal copy of something like a cookbook or a poetry book or something, a special book that you always like to reread, that service is available to you. The other thing with um, Braille is this past August, Minnesota started to loan out the Braille e-reader. So we haven't really advertised it too uh, much right now. Um, we have limited supply of the e-readers. We were, you know, many states are transitioning to offering the e-readers in their state, and we are just happy that Minnesota could do that. 
For those that still need hard copy Braille and don't want to keep the book, we will request books from Utah for you to um, for loan. Now, we received the humanware device, and other states may have the, received the Zoom Max, but here in Minnesota, we have the humanware. And so far, I think the last I checked, we have about almost 120 e-readers out in circulation right now. And I know we've gotten some questions about this. Most folks are using BARD to access Braille to the e-reader, which you know, encourage you to, to do that. But if you do not want to do that, we can send Braille out on book cartridges for you, electronic Braille. We've had some questions is that uh, right now we cannot distinguish a book cartridge that has Braille only titles on it from those that have audio titles only on it. Uh, our system is not right designed right now to distinguish in terms of the process, but I can assure you that if you get a, a cartridge, it will only have Braille uh, books on it. It will not have a combination of Braille and audio if you receive both formats. Um, so for those of you that have the e-reader, just keep in mind a new update was released last September. You can uh, download it wi through Wi-Fi to your device, or if you like, we can send the software to you on a cartridge. Um, for those of you that uh, would prefer maybe listening to the uh, user guide, State Services for the Blind did record a version of the latest version and the previous version of the Humanware User Guide. And it is available on BARD to download, or if you'd like, we can mail it out to you on a cartridge. I'm going to say that most of you that have received the devices haven't had a lot of issues. We haven't had a lot of calls. I think the uh, User Guide, I will tell you, we refer to the User Guide when you call us for assistance, and we have received about I'd say three or four training sessions with NLS staff on the e-reader, but I ask you to be patient. We are new to the devices. Some of you are probably a lot more savvy than we are about using e-readers, but please reach out if you have questions or something is not going right with the e-reader, and we'll do um, everything we can to assist you. If not, we do have support uh, available to us directly from NLS. Another thing I want to talk about, because I know this has been on people's minds, is, is there going to be a new talking book player? Well, that is um, likely. Uh, there are, NLS is now field testing a new talking book machine. They're calling it the DA2. Um, it's based on the humanware Stratus device. And so far, I think the impressions have been pretty good, but we understand there's likely to be some changes. To the device to make it work with for NLS. I think they received about 400 test devices and they're out piloting, piloting them now. I'm not sure. I don't think they'll be distributing yet this year, but I would say probably in 2024. But if that changes, we'll definitely let everybody know. The other project that NLS is working on is Listening to NLS audiobooks using smart speakers like Google Home or Alexa. And those, I hope I didn't trigger anything by saying Alexa, but um, so they are working on testing that. I think there's some pilot testing right now, or field test is actually currently underway to use um, 
Google Home or Alexa or other smart speakers with NLS audiobooks. So yeah, kind of keep um, a listen out for that. And hopefully we can share more information um, as NLS lets us know about where those uh, pilot tests are, are um, going right now. I know many of you are using BARD. I hope you are. It's a wonderful service. And for those of you uh, that use iOS devices, BARD Mobile 2.0 was released last September. NLS called it an historic update and probably one of the most significant updates to the soft, to the app in recent years. For those of you that haven't yet played around, but there's a new search interface in BARD Mobile, you are now no longer going out to the BARD website to search. It has its own built-in search engine within the mobile app. So you can search by keyword, by author, by title, um, annotation. You can narrow by whether you want audiobooks or braille books or both. And um, when you find something that's of interest to you, you can click on and download it right away, or you can add it to your wish list. There are some search features that are not yet available, like searching for non-English, foreign, foreign language, or music. You would still need to use Bard Web to search for those titles and add them to your wish list. The other change NLS introduced um, is the uh, adding longer annotations. I don't know how many of you have noticed that in some of the uh, BARD titles. What they're using is uh, publisher uh, released uh, annotations. And so what that means is that you have more information about the book. However, when BARD Mobile was built, it was built with a 50-word limit for the book descriptions. So some of those annotations are getting truncated. NLS is aware of this, and they are working on a fix. But um, over time, you will see more and more longer annotations for uh, BARD titles. We also heard from some of you uh, that the sleep timer uh, interferes with playback. That is a known bug, and NLS is working on that. And hot off the press, sort of, sort of, is that you no longer need a secret question or an answer to reset your BARD password. So there is a BARD uh, reset password link right on the BARD login page, and it will uh, you will enter your email address. If they find it, they'll send you a link where you can go and reset your password. That link is good for one hour. So just kind of keep that in mind if you start that process. So we really encourage you, because um, I know before a lot of times you would have to reach out to us or um, have that secret question or answer, but you don't have to have that anymore. And the other thing about BARD is NLS is really making an effort to reach out to you folks directly. So they're offering um, some uh, various services and programs. And one you may want to attend is that they call it Many Faces of BARD. And the next program is February 9th, about six, at six o'clock our time. And it's going to focus on BARD Express. BARD Express is a uh, Windows-based software program that you can download from BARD onto your PC. And it has a different search uh, mechanism for finding and downloading books 
So that might be something that's interest I can definitely share with Janet and, and the because it's it is by Zoom. The sessions are recorded, so if you can't make that date and time, you can go back and and um, listen to it. But I can definitely send uh, the link information to Janet. So for any of you that are interested in attending that, uh, that might be something to put on your calendars. Uh, some changes in the magazine program. Starting this month, NLS is now going to offer directly through the NLS program the audio version of guideposts. So I just see some happy faces in there. Um, so for for those that were getting guideposts, we've been sending it out from Minnesota to interested patrons, but NLS is going to make it part of their magazine on cartridge program. So the audio version should be coming. I, I, I didn't have a chance to check to see if any issues are in audio are available yet, but this is a long time coming. We've been asking NLS to make guidepost part of the magazine collection for a very, very long time. It is our most subscribed to magazine uh, out of Minnesota. For those of you that get guidepost, um, it is available in Braille uh, to download on BARD or hard copy. So if you'd like to receive it in hard copy format, you'll need to contact us. And a couple of new magazines, um, Harvard Women's Health Watch and Psychology Today are both in audio and they're both available by mail or on BARD. And I know this is a kind of a touchy subject with us and you, but NLS did cease publishing talking book topics and braille book review in large print last year. And it was a difficult decision, but due to cost and uh, supply chain issues with getting the right paper to print that, they made that difficult decision to cease publication of that in large print. But it's still available in audio. Uh, uh, the talking about topics in audio uh, on BARD or by mail. And Braille Book Review is still available in Braille. And you can also get them both on BARD. So if you want to make changes in your subscriptions, if you've been getting the uh, print version, let us know and we can set you up for the audio version for those that want to get it by, by mail. The last thing I want to just mention is that, uh, as I mentioned er earlier, um, uh, NLS um, is trying to do more activities with uh, directly to uh, patrons across the country, and they are going to do a summer reading program this year. And the topic is um, on kindness, friendship, and unity. And they plan to feature one adult, one young adult, and two children's authors uh, for um, on this theme. And as far as I know, I've been, I've been part of the program since 1999. I don't think they've ever offered a summer reading program or a reading program. So this is, again, it continues their efforts to be more engaged with um, patrons across the country. So that's my update regarding um, NLS. I don't know if you have, have questions or have time for questions. I'd be, I have time. So. We do have time for a few questions, Catherine. Thank you all very right. much. Yeah. Right. First of all, are there any questions in the room? If anyone has a question, um, Raise your hand and someone will acknowledge you, and then I will repeat back your question if we can't hear you over the mic. All right, Randy? Thank you for your question. 
Guidepost audio download, uh, Randy wants to know. Yeah, both um, by mail on cartridge and download from BART in audio. It will be if it's not already there. And then, second, I was told by a friend of mine that there's a 100 book limit per download. It's not per month, it's per 30 days. So that number will drop off. So if you if you hit your hundred limit today, and then you'll have to wait until tomorrow to go down. Um, so that is an NLS um, instituted limit, not us. So, but Just yeah, it's a hundred. I think the couple people in the back mm-hmm. were asked. So this is downloading from NLS from Bard or from Bard, yes, and it's a hundred books per thirty days. Yeah, and it will turn over. So it will tell you when you can next download. I think it does when you, it will give you a date and time. I download tons of books and I've never hit the hundred dollars. <laughs> I will tell $100. you week a hundred. Well, yeah, um, definitely our books are worth more than a hundred dollars. Yes. But, yes uh, uh, yeah. We have had people give us a call about that, but yeah, it is an instituted limit that NLS has set. We need to have quiet in the room, please. And Steve had a question. Uh, okay. I can experience a bug with Bard and Bard Express, where if I looked up a series and then when it goes to list the series, it says zero items. Is that a known bug? A bug with NLS when in Bard, when you're going to download a series and you go into the series and it shows zero, I have had that problem too. Okay. Maybe that would be something to follow up with me and give me an, a specific okay. example. All right. Because a lot of times, um, I know I've been working with somebody this week about their wish list on Bard Mobile. And sometimes I just need an example. Yeah. And series hasn't been loading or I haven't been getting the information on series as okay. I used to. But okay. yeah, that's per- let me see, first of all, if we have any questions in Zoom, Lucy. No questions. All right. All right. I'm. I'm. All right, Nikki. Yes, you had a question. Lost bookmarks on in Bard Mobile e-reader. Where e-reader lost her bookmarks in e-reader. Okay. Oh. Okay. Let me check on that one. Did you do any reset of the device? Okay. Do you use, I know like in, it doesn't happen very often, but I know that the talking book player, there is a limit of bookmarks. So eventually, I don't remember what, you know, it's hundreds, maybe even more than hundreds. But once you get that level, then they will stop. They will start erasing the ones that have been around the longest, I think. But let me check um, on the e-reader because that's something that I have not heard of. I can imagine if you reset the device, that would make sense. But if you haven't done that, um, yeah, let me check into that. And I understand Mike had a question, Mikey. Speak up, please, Mikey. I'm one of those who... uh, 
Time magazine he wants to know about. Oh, is that available? Or he said time was out there and now it's not. Is that correct, Mike? Oh, okay. So he got Newsweek. Now he'd like to subscribe to Time. I'm not. I'm checking real quickly. It's one advantage of being right here in front of my computer. And uh, Time Magazine is not a publication that's available directly from NLS. Right. Yeah. We can suggest it, but it is not. Neither is Newsweek. It might be available through NFB Newsline. I'm not entirely sure. Thank, thank you, Mikey. Uh, I have time for one more question, and I do need to have it quiet in the room because just remember, everyone, when you're talking in the room, it's going out on ACB Media and also on Zoom, and we don't want to be disruptive or disrespectful to our speaker. Marion here. Yes, Marion. Is there any information on the library moving? Oh, information on the library moving. I hope to be able to share information about that soon. That is about all I can say right now. All right. I Actually, we can do one more question. This is Nancy. I just have a comment. The talking book topic, I go now on line. Yep. Right. She gets yeah. That. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I know it, it's been... We've, we've seen a lot of drop-off in getting orders through the mail, um, but maybe some of you are ordering online now or um, calling us or emailing us orders, but the paper copies have definitely dropped off. So, Catherine, thank you so you're much. You're very welcome. Okay. All right. Have a good rest of your convention today. Uh, there you go. All right. Take care, all. Yep. Bye. All right. Now we are on to some more exciting um, information that I'm really excited to share with everyone. And once again, please, everyone, stop visiting with each other, making comments, because we are on Zoom. They are hearing you, especially those that are near us with the microphone. They are really hearing you. So I really please just be very respectful. Our next speaker is Larry Johnson, a very motivational speaker. Um, he comes from San Antonio, Texas. Larry is an author, and he's actually read one of his books on Bard, which is really good. He's a motivational speaker. He has been a broadcaster in Mexico City and then moved back to San Antonio. Today, Larry is going to be touching on a very important um factor that face many of us, especially as we age, in, you know, the aging population faces the fear of falling a lot more. So Larry's topic is facing the fear of falling. So Larry, go ahead. Thank you for the warm welcome from Minneapolis. Let me begin by telling you a little bit about me. First of all, you know my name. I am totally blind and have been most of my life. I'm also now severely hearing impaired, which is a real bummer if you're blind. I'm 89 as of last August, and frankly, I'm amazed that I've lived this long. I never thought about living this long, but here I am. 
Nine years ago, I was at a conference in Colorado, and I learned about a program there called A Matter of Balance. <clears throat> this is a, a course in fall prevention for older people. So I came back to San Antonio and I contacted my local AAA, which stands for Area Agency on Aging. And I asked if I could sign up to become a certified trainer. And they said, yes. And they even provided me with the training manual in Braille. So I've been teaching classes in fall prevention ever since. The A Matter of Balance program is an eight weekly sessions, eight weekly sessions of two hours each. Well, we're not going to have that much time this morning. So what I'm going to do is to give you kind of an overview or an introduction. <clears throat> My hope is that it will motivate you to want to contact your local AAA and find out if they offer the program in your area. And if they do, sign yourselves up. And if they do not, then check with your local Y or your neighborhood gym. And as ACB says, get moving. Well, how big of a problem is falling for older people? So according to the National Institute on Aging, one out of every three adults age 65 and older will fall this year. One out of every three. And for people with vision loss over the age of 65, it's twice that number. Over 10,000 older people die each year from fall-related injuries. 20 to 30% of falls result in broken bones, head traumas, and lacerations. 90% of hip fractures are as a result of falls. <clears throat> And people age 75 and older who fall are four times more likely to be admitted to a long-term care facility. Another consequence of falling is the feeling of fear about falling. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> some 47% of older people admit to having this fear of falling. And your fear of falling actually increases your chances of falling. Fear impacts our feeling and our actions. Fear of falling may cause us to restrict our activities. Uh, we might stop taking walks. We might stop going downtown or visiting friends or doing other things that <clears throat> used to bring us pleasure. And this reduced activity results in our muscles and our bones becoming weakened, which in turn results 
in an increased likelihood of falling when we try to do something. So basically, fear of falling can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, now that I've scared you half to death, <laughs> let's talk about why do people fall? And what can we do to lessen the possibility of falling? Now, there are three main reasons why people fall. Environmental hazards, especially those around our home. Personal behaviors and attitudes. And the physical condition of our bodies and the amount and type of exercise that we do. So I'm going to spend a few minutes on each of these. So let's begin with environment and the hazards in our environment. So we're going to spend a, a little time kind of walking through mentally our homes and seeing what kind of hazards do we do we find there. There is a... Uh, a kind of a checklist that I'll bring your attention to that, in fact, you'll be able to request a copy of it, if you would like, from Patty Slavies. Uh, she has the uh, the document in Word electronically and be able to be able to share it with you. It's about a four-page checklist. <clears throat> so let's first kind of look at the main area, things like lamp cords and telephone cords, those who still have, uh, you know, telephones in their home, landlines. How are, those, how are those cords laid out? Do they cross a walkway? Are they a possible trip hazard? That's one thing that we look at, lamp cords and phone cords. All right. What about throw rugs or runners, as we call them? I know they can be very attractive and a lot of people like them, but they have a tendency to bunch up or to kind of slip and slide, especially if the adhesive backing wears away. And so then they become a trip hazard. They also are common in hallways and uh, in going from one room to the other. So look at the, at the small throw rugs. Do you really need them anymore? Are they really that important or are they more of a hazard to you? Have you tripped over one recently? Okay, another thing to check for are things that we're, I don't know, maybe uh, in a hurry with and we don't always pick up uh, things that drop on the floor. Maybe you have a dog and you have toys for that dog. Are those toys in your way? What about boxes that you bring in from the mail and you drop on the floor of the hallway and you say, I'll pick it up later. Okay. What about if you have grandchildren come over or, or visit visitors who bring their children and they bring 
toys and they drop those toys on the floor. All of those are possible trip hazards. So you want to make sure that your hallways, your passageways, your walkways are clear of clutter. Lighting can be a real important consideration if you still have enough vision to profit from lighting. Is the lighting adequate? Is it full? Do you need to change the wattage in the overhead lights or the lamps that light the passageway or the hallway or going into your bathroom or your kitchen? Lighting can be really important, and as you get older and as your vision begins to decline, maybe you need brighter lights. So that's something to consider. Another thing to look at is when you go into the kitchen, which is one of the areas where there are most common occasions for falls, are you careful about wiping up spills? Do you have a rubber mat on the floor in front of the kitchen area so that if water spills, it falls on that rubber mat? Okay. What about um, cabinets? Are your kitchen cabinets and shelves within easy reach? Do you have to stretch in order to get something down? Or do you have to maybe even use a, a step stool? Now, step stools can be okay if they're stable and they're in good repair. They don't wobble and they have a, a handrail that you can hold on to if you step up onto the stool to reach something that's high up. Another room that is very, very, very prone to hazards are bathrooms, bathroom showers and bathtubs. Do you have something on the floor of the shower on, and in the bathtub that is slip resistant? Do you have grab bars next to your bathtub, next to your shower, even next to your toilet to help you get up and get out? As we get older, it's really helpful for us to have that kind of help so that it's more secure for us to step out of the shower or step out of the bathroom. Okay, so there's another area. And of course, <clears throat> is your bathroom got a lot of tile around it? Do you have a, a throw rug in the tile? Does it have a rubber backing to it so it won't slide or slip as you stand in front of the of the uh, wash bowl and you're brushing your teeth, are your feet secure? Okay. What about walking from your bathroom to your bed and back? Especially maybe if you have to get up in the middle of the night and make a visit to the toilet, is it a clear path? Do you have to move in and out of furniture to get there? Do you have a light on in the bathroom to help you if you can benefit from that light? Do you have something firm, a piece of furniture next to your bed to lean on when you get up out of bed? 
And by the way, when you get up out of bed, take your time. Don't rush. It's really important to move slowly, especially when you're a little older. The U.S. uh, safety checklist is available from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. And as I said, it's a four-page pamphlet. And it can be really helpful for you to check it out against your own environment periodically. And Patty can provide you with a copy of that. Now, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about our habits, our personal habits, and how those habits and behaviors can perhaps cause us to have a fall. I'm going to read a couple of short statements, and I want you to consider, do you agree or disagree with these? One, most falls cannot be prevented. you agree or disagree? Number two, falling should be accepted as a natural part of growing old. And number three, reporting a fall to my doctor could lead to a restriction of my independence. Well, actually, most falls are preventable, and they are not a natural part of getting old. That's the good news. And by discussing your fall with your doctor or a healthcare provider, there is the chance that you can find out what caused your fall in the first place, and what you might be able to do to prevent that from happening again. So exploring now some of our personal habits that can lead to falls. How many of these things are you guilty of? And I'm going to read seven of them. And tell me, well, think and maybe make a note. Are you guilty of walking around in floppy slippers or flip-flops? Sometimes. Most of the time, or never. Are you guilty of rushing to the door when the doorbell rings? Again, sometimes, always, or hardly ever. What about carrying groceries in both hands or items when you're entering the house or going up or downstairs? Guilty? Number four. Never talking about falls or near falls with your doctor or healthcare provider. Number five, very reluctant to ask for help when you need it. Guilty? Six, never take time out for regular exercise. And number seven, Never use grab bars when getting in or out of the tub or shower. Such practices as these can significantly increase the risk of a fall. Think about it. Think about other personal habits or behaviors which you might have, which could perhaps be a risk for your having a fall. Consider changing them. How easy is it to change habits? Habits are very, very hard to change. Yes, they are. 
we have to first of all be convinced that the change is important. And secondly, that it's necessary for our safety. And we should try to change maybe just one habit at a time, maybe carrying things in both hands instead of keeping one hand free all the time, either to hold on to a railing or to be able to use it to 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 uh, help ourselves if we should trip and fall, we can grab hold of something or we can put it down in front of us. Yeah. So start with the easiest habit first. Don't rush to the door when the when the doorbell rings. Take your time. If it's important, the person will wait. Get rid of those flip flops, or maybe um, ask for help. If you need to change the ceiling light in your bedroom, don't think that you can jump up on your bed and balance yourself while you're unscrewing the light bulb and screwing in another light bulb. It's not as easy as it once was. So it's all about being aware of those things that we do now as a part of our daily activities, our daily routines that may put us at risk of experience a fall. Recognize that you're not as nimble as you once were, that your balance is not as good as it once was, and that's okay. We know what your limitations are. One thing is to be afraid. Another thing is to simply be cautious, right? And so that's what we're going to stop for just a minute and see if there's any questions on the first two parts of this uh, talk that I'm sharing with you about hazards in your home and habits that can lead to falls. Any questions? Questions, please let us know, and I will paraphrase your question as best I can. I do. This is Nikki Kobe, and I do have to rush to the restroom. What can I do to make it easier? I, it's literally not a choice. Larry, did you hear that? Rushing in a, to the restroom if you have no other... I, I don't hear the question. You're she answering. wants to know, she said, rushing to the doorbell you talked about. In her case, she needs to, at times, rush to the restroom. Uh, Any suggestions for that? If it really is imperative. Yes. Two, two, two things. Make sure that you have a clear path to the restroom and make sure that you have lighting if that's important to you so that you will see where you're going. And when you first get up, take a, take a, uh, maybe a count of three. Sit up on the side of the bed first. Make sure that you're comfortable and you don't feel dizzy. Then get up and move to the restroom. As we stand up, you know, the blood rushes and, and we're lightheaded momentarily. And that is a danger that could cause you to fall. One more question. Questions in the room? Lucy, do we have any questions in Zoom? No, we sure don't. Good. I, okay. I have a question, actually. Larry, okay. If I may. 
what is the best for, I'm guilty of wearing flappy slippers walking around my house. Of course, I was guilty of all seven of the seven deadly sins, but that's the point. So my question is, what is good footwear to wear when you're walking around your house? Well, you know, if... if I love have, my comfy slippers. Yes, if you have slippers which have rubber soles, that's really good. Okay. okay those are okay. But flip-flops are really not good footwear. I okay. know they're convenient, but they're not really safe. But rubber hole, rubber soled slippers with a back, they're all right. Yes. Cuz I'd hate to change my house footwear. Okay. All right. Any any other questions from the room? Janet, I have more of a comment than a question, but um, I, this is Bryn. I remember at one point when I was new to my house, I forgot about a final step at the bottom of my, of my stairs. And mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of walked as if it was not there, and I ended up slamming my face into the wall. So, you know, just keep keep in mind, you know, remember how many steps you have or remember, remember drop-offs, you know, when you are walking, kind of keep in mind that there might be drops off that you forgot about. That's very important that what you bring up. And one uh, suggestion that was made to me in a class was to put a, a different textured um, mat or rug on the top and the bottom step so that you notice when you're at the bottom. The other thing, of course, is to if you have a railing, to have your hand on the railing all the way up and all the way down. Okay, good. Now we're going to talk about exercise. For some people, that's a kind of an onerous thing. Oh, my goodness, exercise. Do I have to really exercise? Well, let's ask the question, who should exercise? Why should I exercise? And how should I exercise? Three really important questions. I heard this story someone told me about. Uh, he said, you know, he said, uh, my grandmother began walking a mile every every day. That was her plan, to walk a mile every day. And she started doing that a month ago, and we have don't know where she's at now. <laughs> well, hopefully she will find her way back home, right? Okay, so physical activity can and should be part of your everyday life. Find things to do that you like to do, and it's going to be different for everyone. Some people like gardening. Some people like swimming, um, dancing, brisk walking, using a treadmill or, or a, a stationary bike inside. Try all these different types of exercise and see which one you enjoy doing the most. It's also important to decide when do you want to exercise, when in the morning, the day, in the afternoon, in the evening. I personally believe it's easier to do it in the morning. Get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah, starting off with the exercise in the morning actually gives you more energy for the rest of the day. Sometimes you'll want to do the exercise with 
someone because you motivate each other when you do it together. Okay, who should exercise? Almost everyone at any age, it's important to keep moving. And you may have some health condition which may limit the kind of exercise that you should do or can do safely. So talk with your health care provider and find out about that. If you have COPD like I do or diabetes or a heart condition, you may have to choose a kind of exercise that is more appropriate for you. So discuss that with your doctor and find out which one is best for you. Start slowly. If you haven't been exercising, don't try to do too much too quickly. Start slowly and build up. Build up the activity gradually. Be aware that any pain or pressure that you might feel, or maybe if you notice that your heart is fluttering or skipping or racing, that's a sign for you to slow down or to stop and have a conversation again with your doctor to find out why is this happening and do I need to adjust my exercise? A, a physical therapist can be helpful or a trainer at the gym can be helpful. All of those kind of folks are there for your support and for your uh, for your for receiving their advice and their recommendations. Okay, why should we exercise? Why should we engage in physical activity? Because inactivity is actually dangerous, especially to older people. As we get older, our muscles and our bones begin to weaken, and the less active we become the weaker they become. As we said earlier, you know, the, the weaker you become, the more likely are you to have a fall. And so activity actually strengthens your muscles and your bones both and builds up your balance and allows you to be able to be more active more safely. So there's real benefits Besides the physical benefit, there's also the psychological benefit and the mental benefit. You'll notice that people who are active are also able to participate in intellectual activity more easily. Their brain is more alert and and uh, their their whole attitude toward life is more positive. But again, play it safe, but caution does not mean you don't do it. I always kind of use the example of a stoplight. Red light, yellow light, green light. No, green light means you can do it. Yellow light means, well, be safe and be cautious. Look well both ways before you cross the street. Red means stop. So if you're cautious, you may need to ask questions. How 
dangerous is this thing that I'm going to do? There's a box on the top shelf of my closet. How dangerous is it for me to climb up there and get it down? Would it be safer for me to ask my son to do it or my neighbor? So, but if we're too cautious and we sit in our rocking chair all day and watch television or listen to books on our on our uh, on our phone or or on our library cartridge machine then our bones and our muscles get sluggish get weaker and actually cause us to be less healthy and more in danger Medical research has actually shown that everyone can grow stronger through increased activity. So exercise should not hurt this idea of no pain, no gain. That's not true. It should not cause pain. It may produce a little soreness the next day. It may make you tired and you'll sleep better. But The idea of to do it until it hurts, no, that is not recommended, okay? Again, if you're just starting out, 10 minutes a day would be fine. Try working up to maybe 30 minutes a day. But it's much better to exercise a little bit every day than it is to try to do a lot exercise every other day. Wear comfortable Loose-fitting clothing, well-fitting footwear. Again, no flip-flops while you're exercising. If you can, exercise with someone because maybe you can keep each other motivated and you'll stay with it. It makes it more fun. Whichever exercise that you choose should produce benefits In four areas, these are the four areas where you want to see improvement. Endurance, muscle strength, balance, and flexibility. Now, you can use a physical therapist, a personal trainer at your local gym, or you can take a matter of balance class. By the way, the matter of balance class teaches something like 28 different exercises. They're all very simple, and it takes maybe about 30 minutes for me to go through it each day. Be patient with your your exercises. You may not notice results for several months, and that's okay, but keep at it. Don't push yourself if you feel tired. Do a little bit, and if you're kind of feeling down one day, It's okay to do less, but do something. All right. Now, what if you still, after doing all these things, you've removed all the hazards in your home, you've changed some of your personal behaviors or or bad habits that are risk-likely, and you've actually started exercising, but you experience a fall. What should you do? Well, first of all, how do you fall? Have you thought about that? How do you fall? Most of the time, we're going to fall forward. So what you want to do is you want to put out your hands 
Now, if you have stuff in your hands, drop it and put out your hands. If you have time, bend your knees before you actually hit the ground. Putting out your hands helps to protect your head. It's better that you break your wrist than break your skull. Bending your knees during the fall will actually slow the fall and lessen the impact because you're getting closer to the ground. And so the fall impact will be lessened. If you fall backward, try twisting your body to land on your side and move your arms and your hands behind you again to take most of the impact. Now, once you're on the ground, don't try to jump up right away and like a hero. Oh, that didn't hurt. <laughs> no. Take a moment to assess any injury, dizziness, or any other ill effect from the fall. If you feel dizzy or lightheaded, stay still for a moment until that passes. If you experience some pain, try to call for help. If no one is around and you have your cell phone, use that. If you're near your uh, Echo lady or your Google, call them and ask for help. If you're not near either one of those, then just use your strong lungs and bellow out, help, I need help. If you do need to move, try to roll over onto your stomach and crawl to a phone or a piece of furniture. Climb up onto the piece of furniture, the sofa, the bed, or an armchair, something that's sturdy, and sit there for a moment until you feel strong enough to stand. Think over carefully what happened. Why did you fall? Did you feel dizzy? Did you trip? What happened? The reason that's important is so that you can talk about it and describe it to your doctor later. Because this is going to be information that can help them help you avoid another fall. All right? Okay. Well, now we are at the really, really fun part. Because what we're going to do is going to teach you one very simple exercise that you can practice on your own. And this exercise is one that is recommended by uh, one of the uh, organizations that teaches fall prevention, the John Hopkins Medical Center. But before we do the fall, what's really important, the fall, the exercise, <laughs> before we do the exercise, I want to teach you how to breathe. Now, most of you think you know how to breathe. You inhale and you exhale, you inhale, you exhale. Well, what's really not known is that the best way to breathe is to focus on breathing out. Not breathing in, but breathing out. And there have been a lot of studies on this. And the reason is because you want to expel 
all of the bad air that's in your lungs before you take in clean, good air. So slowly exhale through your mouth as much as you can, as much as you can. Push it out, push it out using your diaphragm all the way out. Now, let the air come back in through your nose. So you're going to exhale through your mouth and inhale through your nose. Kind of think like you're going to be whistling. So whistle out. And then let it come back in naturally. It will come back in easily through your nose. It's like like bellows. Now, there's a wonderful book. If you're looking for a book to read, there's a wonderful book called Just Breathe Out, using your breath to create a new, healthier you. It's by a lady named Betsy Thomason, T-H-O-M-A-S-O-N. It is available from uh, NLS on BARD, both as a Braille and as an audio book. Just breathe out. And she will convince you when you read that book why it is more important for you to focus on the breathing out than to taking deep breaths in. It's a very interesting new approach that many, many cyclists use this and long-distance runners and people who are doing strenuous exercise, okay? Now for the exercise. All right, this exercise is called the sit-to-stand exercise. Now, I don't know what kind of chair you're sitting in, but the best kind of chair to sit in is one which is stable, first of all, not on rollers, and that has arms. Okay? That is the best. No arms. We have stable chairs, no arms. Well, all right. Okay. Just FYI. Okay. So... Here's what it was intended to do. It will build your length strength and improve your body balance. Both of these are very important to reducing falls. You start by sitting on the, on the sturdy chair, standard height with your arms, uh, with, with arms if possible. If not, put them in on your sides. And make sure that it the chair isn't going to slide or move. You don't want it to do that. All right. So slide forward on the chair. Slide forward. Bring your buttocks right to the very edge of the front of the seat. Okay? Now, second, lean forward. Lean forward, shifting your body weight forward. Okay, now slowly rise to a stable standing position. And if you need to use your hands to kind of push up a little bit, that's okay the first time. All right, now you're standing. All right, now slowly sit back down. Again, if you need to, use your hands to do this. 
And what you want to do, you want to do this 10 times. We won't do it 10 times, but we'll do it three times, okay? Up, down, up, down. Third time, raise up, sit back down. In the beginning, it's okay to use your hands, whether you're pushing up from arms on the chair or the chair itself. But what you want to work toward is to be able to not use your hands at all, to be able to stand and sit just using the muscles in your legs and back. Gradually, you'll be able to do this more easily, and once you've Got to the point where you can do it 10 times or 15 times. Try holding a, maybe a, a couple of cans, one can at each hand to give it a little more, a little more resistance as you stand and then sit back down. Okay. You think you can do that? That's number one exercise. The other thing is I urge you to, and decide which other exercises you want to do on a daily basis, whether they're walking or using a, a treadmill or going to the gym. And if you find that your AAA in your area has a program of a matter of balance, that is the best. You really will benefit from it. Now, you take the class for the eight weeks. But it doesn't mean then that you stop exercising. The idea is that you're supposed to do those exercises every day for the rest of your life. And it isn't that hard. And after a while, you can be doing it while listening to a book or watching a TV show or playing music. So you can be doing something else. Because uh, you're so automated into doing the exercises that you don't have to focus on, on them. You can even do some of these exercises while sitting in a doctor's office or in the dentist office or in the beauty parlor or wherever you may be. So I strongly urge you to pay attention to the three things that are important to help you avoid having a fall. Make sure that you have removed as many hazards in your home, trip hazards as possible. Change some of your personal habits that are risky and start an exercise program that's comfortable for you and that you will keep at. Okay, now we can take some questions. Larry, thank you so much. Uh, we are going to take a few questions. Um, did I hear Nikki? Yeah. Yes. Um, any advice for someone with swollen feet? Sometimes that causes me problems. Advice for someone with swollen feet, Larry. Say again? I'm sorry? Advice for someone with swollen feet as far as maneuvering. If you have swelling in your feet. Yeah, well, you need to first find out why you have that swelling, and is it treatable? Is there something that you can do to treat it? In the meantime, you can do exercises 
with your upper body that you can do them while you're sitting down. You can do arm exercises and waist exercises and neck exercises. And you, you can uh, get those recommended to you by a physical therapist or by someone at the gym or <clears throat> again through the matter of balance program. Their exercises are combination of exercises that you do standing and or sitting. So, Find out what's going to work best for you, but talk with your your healthcare provider to find out how you can treat those swollen feet. Thank you, Lucy. Do we have anybody in Zoom with a question? No questions. All right. Thank you. Anyone else in the room with a question? Yes, Lisa. Hey, uh, in Minnesota, we have a program called Stepping On. It's similar to a matter of balance. So, and it's also, a, I think, an eight-week series has similar kinds of exercises and information. So, if you hear about a stepping on program, they're also. All right, stepping on program in Minnesota, which is a free program. So, that's great yeah. for exercise and balance. Thank you. Pat. Before before Larry closes, I not only have that checklist, but Larry also sent me another document with exercises. So if anyone wants either of those or both of those, if you could please let me know. Now, don't all jump up right now and give me your name. What, <laughs> but, what we can do is we can post it to the list of everyone, who, all yeah. the convention attendees. I've got an email. Yeah, list. Yeah, yeah, we can do that so that even our Zoom, because we want our Zoom people yes, to be I've just as much all, all included. So... Larry, I want to thank you so much for all your enthusiasm and giving us a wonderful ideas. And are, are we off Zoom now? We will be in a minute. We want to do a door prize or two, oh, Patty? We want to do a, we'll do some door prizes. Our next door prize can go to either a in-person or uh, virtual. It is a $10 gift card from Target. That would go to... Nikki Schlender. One more. Next, next we will do a ten dollars in cash to either a virtual or a in person. Oh boy! Guess who the name is on this one? No, it is Bryn Lee. All right, I think we'll stop for now. So thank you to Lucy and Tyson and Cecily, and we're going to take our lunch now. So we will be back at about 1245. Thank you very much.